I'm Lake Miller. And I'm Hannah Brown. Welcome to Gem City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We're from the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this episode, Lake talked with Zola and Josh of Daybreak and David's Place. They discussed what Daybreak and David's Place are, the use of inclusive language, homelessness relating to LGBTQIA youth, how David's Place came to be, and the power and importance of safe and affirming spaces and people. Enjoy! Well, Josh, Zola, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Yes, I was so, looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was hoping we could take a, just a very brief opportunity for maybe the dreaded question of just like, who do we have with us? Like kind of who, who are you? Uh, <laughs> and before we really get into like what David's Place is, what Daybreak is, um, just getting to know who you all are. So I don't know, maybe Josh, if you want to start and then pass to Zola with just a quick introduction. Absolutely. Thanks again, Lake, for having us. My name is Josh Eglin. I'm the LGBTQ plus program manager at David's Place, uh, which is a program in Daybreak Dayton. Uh, we are a nonprofit in the region that serves individuals who are experiencing homelessness or have been unhoused or are at risk of being unhoused uh, between the ages of 18 to 24. We also have a minor wing program that serves uh, individuals that are 10 to 17. And um, our program is designed to provide an affirming, welcoming, safe environment for our Q plus identified young people in need of this support. I'll pass over to Zola. All right, hey, um, I am Zola Howard. I am the LGBTQ Youth Support and Prevention Specialist. I like to tell people I have two caveats into my job and career here. Um, on one hand of things, I am the LGBTQ Youth Support Specialist. So anyone who falls, as what I call within the family, um, a lot of people say, you know, in the community, I say the family, um, because we are all, we're all here to support one another. Um, I add in any additional supportive services to any youth who identifies as anything other than cisgender heterosexual normative. So anyone within the LGBTQ plus family, um, on the other hand of that, I do prevention work, um, and I mainly focus on high-risk behavior prevention, whether that is alcohol and drugs, um, preventing the use of um, preventing the use of alcohol, and, alcohol and other drug substances, sorry, <laughs> um, or high-risk sexual behaviors through the use of education um, and various curriculums. I provide services to area schools as well as Daybreak, utilizing the Pride for Life curriculum, Overcoming Obstacles curriculum, or the prep curriculum. Um, and I really have fun and enjoy doing what I do. <laughs> Thank you both. And, and Zola, I love that you kind of mentioned you use the term family versus saying community. Um, and it occurs to me just like how important language is, you know, and how that easy little shift in language can have, I would assume, a really enormous impact, right? It does, because within the LGBTQ um, plus like family, we have to recognize, especially working within our age groups, um, starting from the age of 10 up to the age of 24, a lot of times people are um, 
misplaced or they get kicked out of their home. They don't recognize um, that they have family elsewhere. Sometimes family is what you make it. And within this community, within this cohort, we have to make our family. So that's why I call us the LGBTQ community. I call us the family. And that's why. Because no matter what age you are, no matter where you are, no matter what path you're on, if you're up under this umbrella term, you're still a family member to me. You're part of my family. Um, and the allies, I call friends of the family. So <laughs> because they are still friends, everyone needs a friend. Um, so yeah, we have friends of the family and then we have the family. <laughs> and it ties into, I think, like this really rich narrative, which, you know, there's obviously a complex narrative of historical traumas and, you know, really uh, tragic happenings throughout history that have been targeted at the LGBTQI plus community. But there's also this narrative of resiliency. There's this narrative of solidarity. Um, you know, and I also think of like, you know, the Sister Sledge song, We Are Family. Um, that was an anthem for the disco era, which is so close to my heart. Here's a little sidebar. But it's also, I think, really um, powerful looking at history and recognizing that um, in addition to a lot of other cultural things happening at the time, disco was shattering all of the barriers between different marginalized groups and bringing different marginalized identities together. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, the Comiskey Park uh, episode where they exploded all these disco records in the middle of a, a ballpark and people were starting to wear disco sucks shirts. We look back on that now as kind of an example of the backlash for when there's like a movement towards bringing marginalized identities together and then like the mainstream can't tolerate it so much. So in addition to, you know, Zola's perspective on this, I think like it's a powerful term because there's history with it. And there's this like thread that we can look at throughout history as to how, despite all of these barriers, all these hardships, all of these, you know, like one step forward, one step back, there's still this theme of we are family. We are in this together. Mm -hmm. Indeed. That's awesome. And I, and I love, um, I think looking at this and, you know, I think reckoning with history is always a really difficult piece when we're looking at these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether that be reckoning with our own personal history, our community history, um, kind of figuring out what was going on around us. Um, and I think there's been this long uh, desire for some to come together, but this oftentimes even stronger push by others to tear us apart. Um, and so I think being so purposeful about what can bring us together, that we are that family, that you know, at the end of the day, we have a heck of a lot more that unites us than we do that that doesn't. Um, and so I think that to me, it's almost this reclaiming. Mm -hmm. It is. I look at, so for example, um, and this is, this is kind of also where that term kind of developed from within um, the African-American community. There's a thing called kinship. I know a lot of communities have it, but it is very prevalent within the Black community to have kinship. Um, and we never called it kinship growing up. Like if I say that's my cousin, that's my cousin. Doesn't matter if we're blood related or not, <laughs> like that's my cousin. Um, and sometimes we have to look to those kinships and outside of our traditional family to sometimes get that support that we need. So again, with the historical factors to it, and even in my case, like the intersectionality of different um, parts of who I am, it really just, it signifies to other young people and other people out here like, hey, again, no matter blood or not, no matter, you know, the history of what parents, grandparents or anyone else in your, you know, typical blend, your family, your blood family may think, 
you know, you still have someone out here that's going to support you, that's going to love you, that's going to be there for you, that's going to encourage you to make good decisions um, and encourage you to do and do your best in life and live your best life at the same time. So that to me, that is all encompasses the family. And then we got the friend of the family who's the ally that's rooting us on, <laughs> rooting us along the way, you know, cheering us on, same. So. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, and I know both NCCJ and, and Daybreak, we're both in this, this world of serving youth. And I think for youth to understand that there is somebody there who, who cares about you, who supports you, who sees you, um, that's so vital. So Josh, I know you went a, a little bit into what Daybreak is and, you know, you mentioned serving homeless youth. Um, I think that so often there's like so many misconceptions about homelessness and like what that means and what that looks like. Um, and so I, I guess maybe this is a big question, but like, um, what does homeless mean kind of under the definition of, of what Daybreak is looking at? Now, that's a great question, Lake. And it's also, I think, a term that is loaded um, and is a term that, you know, we're really, I think, in the process of reevaluating and, and renaming, um, you know, more and more uh, I'm seeing and scholarly journals and articles and trying to, you know, utilize more myself, this term of being unhoused or being, you know, in a position where someone may lose their housing. Um, I think oftentimes homelessness has, like you said, this connotation. There's this certain image that we think of. Um, there's certain, you know, maybe less than charitable attitudes towards that term that have uh, fermented over the years and you know are still in play in certain circles. Um, and a pandering element perhaps at times with that term that I've experienced. Um, and so for the purposes of the work that we're doing at Daybreak and at David's Place specifically, we're really looking at individuals who are either staying in a shelter, staying in their car, staying in a place not meant for habitation um, for whatever reason and specifically within the work we're doing we're recognizing that the prevailing reason and the prevailing theme um, kind of you know in counterpoint to Zola's uh, you know recognition of the importance of family the prevailing theme has been rejection. The prevailing theme has been lack of community acceptance, lack of community supports, which result in an individual either choosing to leave the residence they're staying at because their family is creating an unsafe environment for them and they're trying to be proactive about their survival, which tells us a lot. When someone will leave um, what from the outside looks like a stable environment in order to be in a position where they may be um, trading, say, sex for food or um, making really uh, hazardous decisions, high-risk behaviors um, that, again, from the outside looking in may seem counterintuitive. I think it speaks a lot to the volume of um, ignorance, rejection, um, and just hardships that individuals are dealing with um, within their households, within their families. There are also other individuals we serve who are actually forced out of their home. Uh, they come out to their parents, they take this, you know, monumental leap forward to uh, be seen, to be heard, and to be understood. And instead, they come up against this rejection, they come up against this um, lack of acceptance and awareness. And that results in them being asked to leave their, their home. So those are the things that, you know, we experience and think of in relation to that term and the work that we're doing. 
I'll say we also service those because um, sometimes they are forgotten about the youth who age out of foster care. Um, a lot of times when you age out of foster care at 18 or 21, it doesn't always have to be 18, it can be 21. Um, for some of them, their foster families may not let them, allow them to stay there. Um, they will send them out into homelessness and they'll have to figure it out on their own. Um, so here at the agency, I feel like we do take a proactive approach to, hey, if you are aging out of the foster care system, if you are, um, you know, possibly getting out of juvenile, juvenile court or something and your parents just don't want you back at home, this is a safe place for you to come to. This is a safe place for you to receive a warm bed, a hot meal. Um, I think a lot of times people do still hold on to that negative connotation of homelessness or um, a person without a proper living habitation or a proper living arrangements. Um, people hold on to those negative, those negative things and a lot of times it is based on media and movies and television. But really, um, stepping into this world or stepping into a shelter, you would be, especially coming into like daybreak, people are really surprised like, oh, I didn't think it would be like this. Or, oh, I wasn't expecting this. And it's like, well, because you're probably associating it with something that you've seen on TV, which is not always a reality. It's funny. I was, I was thinking that exact same thought, Zola, of, um, the image that I had walking into David's place, walking into daybreak was like drastically different than what I actually saw. You know, I think most people's interactions probably with homelessness and with shelters is like the image on the news of like a large gymnasium with like cots on the floor or something like that. And people coming in and like, you know, torn up clothing, you know, who are not fed or any of whatever that image looks like. Um, and, and I will say like, even my own biases certainly showed when I, when I came to David's place, when I went to daybreak for the first time, it was like, huh, okay. So this is, this is wrong. Um, but I think we're given such incomplete stories as we go through society. And I feel we are, a lot of times we are given incomplete stories, especially for the individuals who are experiencing not being housed at that time. Um, because a lot of times, again, going back to what we see in media, what we see in TV, um, what's portrayed in movies of a homeless individual, we see um, drug addiction, we see alcoholism, um, we see a lot of mental health, where sometimes, again, we're not being told that whole story of that person. Um, we're not, we cannot sit back and say that every single person that comes into Daybreak or St. Vincent de Paul shelters, we can't say that all of them have an addiction. We don't know what happened or what transpired in that person's life to um, that got, to, got them to the situation where, that they are in now. And one of the things like Mr. Josh was saying, we have youth that come in here and it would look like on the outside, oh, you have a beautiful home, your parents have great careers. And then you get to peeling back layers and you see that, okay, so this was very an unhappy home. It was not really as stable as people thought. There may be addiction in the home. There may be alcoholism in a home. It, and it could just be that at the same time, it could be they came out to their parents and it was beautiful in a stable home, but because of who you are and how you identify, you can't live here anymore. And I think it also ties into, you know, like you're saying, like we all have implicit bias, we all have, you know, the information that we absorb from the media and then how we try to make sense of that in relation to our reality and the, the different things in our community. Um, so in addition to 
you know, the different information that we have at our disposal or the information we're missing about uh, different marginalized communities or individuals who are experiencing, um, you know, an episode of homelessness or being unhoused. Uh, we have this culture that really values appearances, that really values, um, you know, for instance, borrowing money and uh, taking out big loans for things to create a surface appeal or a surface image of, of who we are and how we are, and that there's a lot of value and emphasis placed on that. And the, there's often a big disconnect between the appearance that we present in our society and the reality of, you know, what do those bills look like? What do people actually have in their bank account? Um, so I think every day, not just with the youth uh, age group that we're serving, but across the age spectrum, we can look at different um, stories, different, you know, lived experiences, things that we maybe even experience ourselves, where there's this disconnect between how we try to present for our, our community so that we don't get stigmatized or put in, um, you know, pegged in that hole of, you know, experiencing hardship or needing, you know, a quote unquote handout. Um, and then the reality of what we're actually experiencing. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the tragedy is a lot of people, I think, withhold themselves from support so they don't seek support because they fear further stigmatization they fear mm -hmm. further uh you know pigeonholing or or being put in a category that they don't identify with mm -hmm. they don't they stop themselves from doing things or seeing certain things or like you said seeking help because mm -hmm. they don't want to be perceived as or labeled as this type of person so well i think you know this uh, this kind of story that you all continue to tell of like the, the person who was leaving a harmful environment, the person who came out and was, you know, forced out of their home. Like to me, that's a narrative of strength of a child who had to make an incredibly difficult decision, um, which may in the short term uh, really have, you know, kind of hard hardships that come out of that. Right. But in the long term are, are likely, in their best interest. Um, and so I think like that becomes really at odds with what people's image is or um, with, you know, this focus simply on material possessions, losing the fact that um, this is still a strong person. This is a person who had to make a decision um, that probably many of us can't fathom making. So I, I think that then comes to David's place. I wanna, I wanna make sure we really focus on, on like what David's place is. So. I think this sets a, a good scene for what daybreak is. And then also I think starts to kind of get into the daybreak or the David's place conversation, but um, what is David's place? So David's place originated as the idea of, of David Mudry, who was a young gay man who uh, grew up and came of age in Oakwood, um, which, you know, is a very suburban, a somewhat more affluent community in our Miami Valley region. Um, and had very loving and accepting parents. Um, Sandy and Elaine Mudry, David's parents, were very accepting and understanding when he came out to them. Uh, and he was pretty quick to recognize that like that was an outlier experience in his community. A lot of his peers were experiencing the antithesis of that with their families. They were experiencing rejection. They were experiencing questioning, you know, challenging their, their identity and not recognizing or honoring their pronouns or their sense of self. 
And David's house became a safe space. It became David's place. They would have, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race night screenings and um, have hangout time where Sandy would just, you know, let them have their space and their time and then just be there as an affirming adult in that environment. There's this powerful statistic. We were actually just doing a training on this and highlighting the statistic, which you probably heard, that LGBTQ plus youth who have one accepting adult in their life are 40% less likely to attempt suicide. One adult is all it takes. And, you know, Sandy was that adult and Ole was that adult. And they represented this really safe and warm environment for young people who really needed it at that time in David's and their life. David later went on to college and was planning to start a program that was inspired by this, this little idea, this, this kernel of an idea that was David's house. And he was 23 years old after he just graduated his undergrad and he tragically passed away in his sleep. Um, he had an undiagnosed cardiac condition. The family was gutted uh, and completely blindsided by this. It was not obviously something they had considered. It's a parent's worst nightmare. Um, and in their grieving and in their mourning, Sandy had this revelation um, where David came to her and said, David's place, mom, you can do this. And Sandy approached the Dayton Foundation and, and brought this vision to, to our community and said, hey, what can we do to make this vision possible? Um, and, you know, Dayton Foundation approached Daybreak as well as a number of community partners. You know, Dayton Children's has been involved in this, PFLAG Dayton, um, Public Health, the Adamus Board, a bunch of different community providers that kind of brought their, their resources together and recognized the need uh, for this program to happen because we recognize that LGBTQ plus youth are overrepresented in service providers for those who are unhoused. So whereas we know that LGBTQ plus youth make approximately 10 to 15% of the population with growing numbers based on growing acceptance, um, we recognize that about 40% of our population in these shelter systems is LGBTQ plus vulnerable young individuals. Um, and that's a clear overrepresentation within those systems. And in order to meet the needs of those individuals and kind of get upstream, hopefully, and do some of this prevention work that Zola is involved in, the NCCJ is involved in, to try and, you know, not just mitigate the factors that are uh, ongoing in a person's life in a time of crisis, but to get upstream and try to prevent these situations from occurring in the first place is the goal of David's Place and the vision that Sandy and Ole have gifted to this community. I think that's, uh, I mean, it's an amazing story. Uh, and I think, you know, that statistic really stands out to me so much. I mean, we're both, I think, Daybreak and NCCJ in this profession of helping youth. And um, I think so often, like, we can forget how little it takes to make that big difference, right? Like, it is not hard as an adult to be that person for a young person. Like, it is not hard to be that, that person. <laughs> and I think also when we look at this topic, like, you know, I always talk about um, at the end of the day, this is really like a, a human issue. This is 
people who are dying at dramatically higher rates, people who are being displaced at dramatically higher rates. And like, we have this kind of responsibility to do something. Um, I think, you know, to open your house up to, to the community is not an easy feat. I mean, I'm sure that for Sandy to do that and to continue to do it was tough. You know, there's, there's a burden that comes along with that for sure. But I have to imagine too, those rewarding moments clearly outweighed um, whatever hardships may come across, you know, come along with like opening your doors to your home. Um, but I hope the, the people who are listening kind of get that message from that story of like, that could be you, you know, you could be that person in this community. Um, you could be that person in your school and you are wherever. Um, right. Just, and, it, and with that right. statistic, again, it just takes one person. And I feel like, um, I do see a growing trend, hopefully here and day, and that we will have more affirming places and more affirming people and providers within the city. Um, and especially also in schools, um, especially in school systems, one affirming adult, two affirming adults, just to uh, mitigate and intervene when, those, when the bullying situations happen. Because a lot of times our LGBTQ youth, um, they are bullied, they are picked on. And to have someone, an adult figure, a person, uh, in a position of power that can step in and just say, hey, you know, that's not okay, that's not cool. Like, and this is why that's not okay. This is why that's not cool. Like um, trying to have someone there or at least having someone there to ensure the safety as well as the emotional and social growth of another individual, I think is amazing. Um, and I, I feel that we have this growing trend in Dayton and I really, um, my hope for the future, I really wish that in the future, that it will continue to grow and we will become just how um, we are known as being a very accepting city of refugees and an accepting city of um, people coming in, coming from coming into the states internationally. Um, I want us to be known as the maybe like a baby San Francisco, an accepting city of all sexualities, all genders, all orientations, all nationalities. Like we can be that, we can do that here. It takes a lot of work, but I do feel like we can do that. And again, it starts with one person. It starts with a group of people. It starts with us having this conversation. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I think, I agree. I think, you know, the people are here to make that happen. Um, the people of Dayton want to come together. I mean, we've seen that time and time again, where this community comes together. Now, now I'm curious, um, you know, we've had this conversation on the podcast prior, um, but I think a lot of people see spaces like David's Place or they see things like pride marches, right? And like some people's reactions start to become, well, why do they need their own space, right? There's not a, there's not a straight pride. There's not a straight homeless support center. Like, um, and people start, I, you know, I think those questions are probably just a justification for homophobia. Um, but why is it so important to have these very specific spaces? We're chuckling because we were just having this conversation like yesterday. Um, and unfortunately it is kind of one of those like easily answered questions, but it's a question that keeps coming up because, you know, there's this lack of education, there's this lack of awareness across the board. And so, you know, we just did this training, this is just a little sidebar. We did this training where we were talking about um, 
you know, statistics around acceptance and the Glad Harris poll, which is produced annually to gauge kind of the temperature of our, our culture in relation to the LGBTQ plus community. And the poll has kind of stagnated over the years. It's showing increasing acceptance, but there's categories around education specifically, you know, like teaching an LGBTQ plus history lesson in school, or if your child's teacher identified as LGBTQ plus, how comfortable would you be with that? And these questions still show like high levels of discomfort. So I wanna contextualize this, this question because it's an important question with the understanding that the reason this question keeps persisting is because people are really resistant to inclusive education. And that the answer again is education and empowerment. If we can get this awareness increased across the board, this question will disappear, I hope eventually. For the time being, my answer to the question, I'll let Zola chime in as well, is that the world is a safe place for heterosis individuals. Um, and not to say and to minimize gender-based power violence and, and power imbalances that exist in our society. Um, but if we turn on a television, we do some channel surfing at any point in time in the last century, we will see representation of heterosexual individuals, straight individuals, cisgender individuals, predominantly male cisgender individuals across the board. It is just very prevalent. We will not see prevalent representation if we look back on a century worth of media of LGBTQI plus or other marginalized communities, um, such as BIPOC, indigenous individuals, um, and others that live at that intersection. So these spaces are important for that reason, because it doesn't exist elsewhere. It hasn't existed elsewhere. And maybe, you know, once we get to a point where that representation is equitable, where we see that there is, you know, realistic representation, truthful representation of all identities, all walks of life, this question will become a little more antiquated, I think. Yeah, and Mr. Josh, you answered that just eloquently as always and very elegant. Um, and I have to answer this question the same way I answer the question of why do HBCUs exist? Why do um, the Divine Nine, the Black sorority and fraternities exist? I'm gonna say like this, when you are the standard, when you are the majority, when you are already there, you don't need more representation. So if you are straight, if you are cisgender, you are the majority. What more representation do you need? You already have it. So when it comes to someone like me, who is a queer woman of color, queer black woman, I can't pick up a magazine. I can't watch a show until recently. I can't go back 20 years and see a movie with a black queer woman in it. It doesn't, like, you know what I mean? It doesn't exist because Black queer women, we're not the standard. We're not the majority. We're, we're a very small minority. It works. It's a small minority of us. So I feel like these spaces need to exist. They have to exist. Just to show people, just to show others, like me, like Mr. Josh, like anyone else, like you can be you and it's okay for you to exist. Because for a long time, we were taught LGBTQ individuals are not supposed to exist. They're not supposed to be here. It's derogatory. It's demeaning. You are... You have a mental health issue. Um, you're criminal. You're, you're and criminal. You're menacing. Um, you're not supposed to be here. So these spaces have to exist. 
Um, and I feel this deep in my heart, especially again, being a black queer woman, it's like, I have to show other black queer kids they exist because growing up, you're like, okay, so I could be black in this space or gay in this space, or I could be gay over here or black over here. In this space, you could be who you are, what, however you come, you will be accepted. Um, and it is very important to have these spaces because without these spaces, people tend to be erased. People, again, with that 40%, people tend to harm themselves. People tend to go into deeper depression. People, um, people will go into more of a, I'm not even gonna say a survivalist mindset. They go more into a despair mindset. And this, these spaces bring people out of that despair. It shines light on the minority who is not the majority. If you are the majority, no matter, I mean, just if you are the majority in a construct where systems are made for you, you don't need representation in that system. You made that system. It was made for you. So <laughs> that's my little rant there. <laughs> I, no, I think that you're exactly right, though. I really, I appreciate those answers. And, you know, I mean, I think it, it makes me think about um, as people have even tried to make these conversations conversations more mainstream, like if we think about um, media, for example, and like, you know, like Cheerios, for example, will have like a commercial that has, you know, a same sex couple um, in the community, like people are up in arms about it, right? Uh, and, and like, things like that, to me, really reinforce, okay, so there's actually not community readiness uh, behind this, like, it just reinforces to me how much spaces like David's place are still needed. And it does, like there, the poll that Mr. Josh mentioned, the GLAD poll, there's one statistic and it blows my mind every time we read it. And it's a statistic about same-sex couples holding hands and how it still makes people uncomfortable to see a same-sex couple hold hands. But here we have, <laughs> we're in a community where, in a population where if we turn on the TV, if we listen to radio, we are continuously like dehumanizing women and sexualizing women uh, where of course, and everyone has heard the term sex sales. So only you're telling me sex sales, but holding hands in a committed loving relationship is what makes you uncomfortable. But you turning on, let's say, I don't know, let's say a Lifetime movie and two people are engaging in what appears to be sexual acts. That's okay if it's a straight couple, though. <laughs> so that still the whole holding hand thing, like, it blows my mind every time we see that statistic. And there's a separate issue here at play, too, that I do think is important. And I don't think this is necessarily where people are coming from when they raise that question. But, you know, I always try to, like, lean into, okay, well, you know, where are people coming from? And, and what are maybe, like, valid observations or concerns in other angles and, and attitudes towards our community? And one, you know, important thing that I think is brought up by that question is the, the truthfulness of representation. There are times where there is pandering in our media. There are times where there is tokenizing in our media. And I think across the board, however we identify, we perceive, we recognize a lie from a truth. We recognize when something has an element of like a forced hand or something that's really, um, 
tokenized and, and superficial and not really a genuine representation. And then we recognize when it's genuine. Um, and again, I think it's easier for us to recognize it when it's um, part of our lived experience and it's part of our community. But, you know, again, to give context here, I think it's important that representation be uh, apparent for marginalized identities. It's equally important that representation be truthful and comprehensive and, um, and congruent with the lived experiences and coming from the lived experiences of people who live at those intersections, as opposed to being painted or colored in by people who are from maybe, you know, a more cis heteronormative attitude, trying to represent someone from a marginalized identity. That typically counteracts the real needs of, of inclusive representation. I think representation, and it's interesting, actually, uh, this topic of representation has come up a lot in, in our recent podcast episodes. Um, I think representation is oftentimes like pretty fake, right? Like we look for a black person who fits our standards or our norms, right? Like we look for a gay person who fits this, you know, some sort of standard. Like I think so often representation is done in a lot of spaces to just Check make people feel as though, yeah, make people feel as though they did the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not true representation. And it's not empowering at that, you know, because it's, if anything, at the worst end of the spectrum when it comes to misrepresentation, um, it's actually an attempt to groom. It's an attempt to coerce individuals who are existing at the margins into um, adapting their behavior or changing their presentation of themselves to, you know, accommodate the comfort level of a cis-hetero mainstream narrative. And... That I think is the most pernicious side of it. Um, I, I do think that that is not like the prevailing attitude or the prevailing um, reasons why that misrepresentation happens. I think ignorance is probably a more common denominator, but there is definitely, and I've seen it firsthand where it's like, oh, they're trying to tell me how to be gay. Um, you know, and it's usually, you know, okay, well, the acceptable version of gayness would be having a white picket fence and a dog and a family and, you know, uh, raising, you know, a certain like image. Super flamboyant. Yeah. yeah, tone it down a little bit or, or yeah. be a certain type of flamboyant, like modern family flamboyant is mm -hmm. okay, but Billy Porter flamboyant is not. You know, those are the types of things that we, I think, deal with at these intersections. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it sounds like, you know, creating these spaces where people can kind of leave that baggage behind, you know, and come as they are and be loved as they are. And as Zola said, you know, be part of that family. Right. Join the family and just leave all those check boxes that you may have checked before. Leave them outside. We don't we don't have to check boxes around here. You can be who you are. You don't have to label yourself, name yourself, whatever the case may be. And you will be accepted. Um, just as long as you are who you are. And that's something that I like to really um, push forward in the youth around here is loving who you are, no matter what stage you're in, no matter if you're questioning, no matter if you're exploring, no matter what the case may be, loving who you are in the moment that you are in. So. Awesome. I love that. And, and I feel the responsibility, I know as we're wrapping up here uh, to say, and I say this all the time, I've said on the podcast many of times, um, but just for listeners out there, just to really reaffirm, like, 
diversity is not the same thing as inclusion. Um, like just simply bringing people to the table does not make that table inclusive. Um, and so I'm sure that you all have a lot to say about that as well. Uh, but I think that sometimes we assume that if we just bring people to the table, all the problems of the world will be solved. But there's a heck of a lot more work that has to go into it once you've even gotten the people there. Absolutely. And I mean, I couldn't say it better if I if I wanted to, like, you hit the nail on the head. And it's also, I think, important to recognize that, again, at the, the dark side of the spectrum, the, the worst um, embodiments of that sort of backhanded approach to diversity and inclusion efforts is putting the weight of representation and of advancing the needs of a community on one representative mm -hmm. or two representatives. And they have to answer for the needs of a whole community and they have to be the experts in everything. Um, that's another way of kind of siloing, marginalizing and discriminating against individuals who are already experiencing all sorts of, you know, minority stress and trauma and challenges and different day-to-day -day situations. Yeah, Mr. Josh, you said exactly what I was thinking, just um, especially touching on like not, not bringing someone in, again, just to check boxes um, and not having them represent the entire community. Just because I like to tell people, just because you may have met one gay person or you may have met one trans person, doesn't mean you have met all gay people. You have not met all trans people. And you, one. Right, you <laughs> one. And to just bring someone in to check a box for diversity and expect them to know everything, everyone is different. Just because we may be within the same family or we may be within um, the same like contacts or within the Venn diagram of the same group, same group of people does not mean I can represent that entire group of people because each person is still there, we have individuality, each person's gonna be different. What I've experienced as a black queer woman may not be another black queer woman's experience. What I may experience period as a woman may not be another woman's experience. So we cannot just bring people in to check boxes. To have that actual inclusion is to allow space for that, allow space of the I'm not going to say like the not knowing, but allow space and understand and recognize that this person is still just one person. There's going to be a variety and a difference amongst all groups of people. So don't just go checking boxes. <laughs> well, um, one thing that really uh, I think stands out to me today is there's a lot more conversations that we can and should be having. Um, <laughs> I know I always really enjoy the the conversations that I get to have with both of you. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to, to see, are there any other things that you want to throw at us today? Um, we definitely just want to highlight the um, presence and uh, the resources that we have at David's Place. Um, if anyone is in need of supportive services or you know someone in your community um, that falls within our age group and could benefit from resources to stabilize their situation or to provide some more support to their situation. Um, just, you know, be conscious that we have uh, our website, www.daybreakdayton.org. Uh, anyone can get an overview of all the programming that we have here, as well as starting um, a hotline call if they need emergency shelter through that website. Uh, you can also call our center directly at 
395-4600, extension 154. And again, that's 937-395-4600, extension 154. And uh, our operations specialist, Christina, or myself, or Zola will follow up. Um, we can schedule an intake or a tour of the facility of the space. Um, and we are here to support whatever needs you or your community may have. Well, I appreciate you both. Thank you for being this resource in the community. Thank you for the work that you do. And definitely, um, we always encourage listeners, you know, towards the end of these conversations, particularly conversations um, where we may have mentioned suicide, that if you are somebody who needs that help, help is there. Um, strongly encourage folks to reach out to Daybreak if those services sound appropriate for you. Um, and also at the end of this episode will be a link to resources that you can utilize, um, but we certainly encourage folks to utilize those resources and to get that help, it's there. Um, and you can join Zola's family. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we would love to have you. Well, thank you both. I've greatly appreciated it and uh, look forward to more conversations in the future. Same here, same here. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having us. Likewise, like thank you. And for everyone listening, I hope you have a good rest of the day, a good rest of the week. Thank you for listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, help is out there. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 8225 or reach out to the crisis text line by texting START to 741741. Both of these resources are free and confidential.